This morning there are two focal points, two burning issues which are on my heart as I stand in front of you. One is inward of all the, directed toward all of the experiences that Anne and I and Shauna have gone through over the last eight to ten weeks involving the adoption of our new little baby girl, Carissa, for whom you prayed, the death of my father, all of the things which together are uh, such a bundle of emotions and fire and flood, joy and tears. That's the one focus. But the other focus, which is the center of my thinking this morning, is outward and involves what uh, we just heard in song, God's call to the world. And somehow with you this morning, I'd like to bring those two focal points together to form one image of what God is really about in the world, what God's doing in the world today. And I'd like to do this by focusing on three people and reflecting on the questions that they pose for us. The three people are Jonah, Tom Brewster, and our new little baby girl, Carissa. They all form a line and involve, I think, the secret to what God is about in the world today. First of all, uh, Jonah. You all remember Jonah from your uh, Sunday school classes? He's the fellow that had a close encounter of the third kind with a whale, or at least a very large fish. He was a prophet in the nation of Israel. And God came to him and said, I want you to go to the largest city in the world. And there I want you to tell them that I'm going to visit them with judgment and destroy their nation because of their wickedness. That city was Nineveh. It was the city that was the greatest enemy of Israel at the time. It would be like God coming to someone in our congregation and saying, I'd like you to go to Moscow and preach in the Kremlin. And you know uh, Jonah's response. Instead of heading to Moscow, he headed for the North Fork of the Salmon. <laughs> Caught a ship to the farthest area of the world that he knew of. And as he was... Uh, faced with a problem there that God was going to stop him from heading away from his commission. You know the story. Just before the seamen threw him into the ocean, he, they said to him, tell us, uh, what's the problem here? That's a living translation. Uh, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you from? And Jonah answered them, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah knew who God was, and he knew that God had a plan for the nations. And that's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He said at the very end of the book, after God had spared Nineveh from the judgment that he had prophesied, he said, God, I knew it. I knew that if I did this, you were going to be merciful. I knew that if these people heard this, they were going to repent, and you were going to not judge them. And then this nation 
which is the enemy of my people, was going to survive. Lord, wasn't this what I said while I was still in my homeland? That's why I fled to Tarshish to prevent it, for I know that you are a gracious God and disposed to pity, slow to anger, most merciful, and grieved at calamity. As we sing and fellowship together this morning in the warmth of our congregation, Jonah poses a question for us, and that question is, my brothers and sisters, what about Nineveh? What about the world that is lost without Jesus Christ? We don't talk much about lostness anymore, do we? But God's word says that a world without Christ is a lost world. And the question that Jonah writes in front of our eyes with burning letters is, what about Nineveh? What about a world that has never heard? My wife Anne has a dream, and she's had it for a number of years, that out of this congregation and other congregations in Idaho and the United States, that young people in junior high and starting in junior high and then in high school would go as exchange students to the Soviet Union to Moscow or Leningrad. They don't let people go many other places in the Soviet Union. And there, as they went to school, they would rub shoulders with the children of the elite of that nation. And let me tell you, those young people are hungry for meaning and purpose in life. There are no true communists behind the Iron Curtain. There are only opportunists, and they know it isn't working. What about Nineveh? How would you feel about your son or daughter going to the Soviet Union? What about Nineveh? I learned a song when I was a young believer. We have a story to tell to the nations, a story of truth and light. And God's word challenges us to be salt, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. What does that really mean? Are we willing to accept the implications of that? The second person that poses a question for us this morning is Tom Brewster. Tom and his wife, Betty Sue, Ann and I met them, my goodness, 12, 14 years ago. Linguists, both of them have their doctorate in linguistics. I know of no couple that has had a deeper and more significant impact on world missions and the cause of Christ over the last 20 years than Tom and Betty Sue Brewster. They developed a method to train missionaries to learn other languages. Anne and I were guinea pigs for that method in uh, Europe. I can testify that it works. But they went all over the world, to the most remote parts of the world, to help the ambassadors of Christ learn how to more effectively communicate with the cultures that they were reaching. They went into New Guinea and the strangest places in the world, Peru. They were off in the uh, hills, way, way back in the Andes, where the Inca's uh, capital city was. can only be reached with a swinging drawbridge that dangles over a 2,000-foot chasm. The question Tom Brewster poses to us, Tom is dead now. Tom was a paraplegic. He had been crippled in a swimming accident and for the 26 years of his marriage to Betty Sue, never walked. 
He went, as he described it, uh, across this rope bridge being carried by an Indian guide looking over the edge. The other guide was behind him carrying his wheelchair, and Betty Sue followed, I'm sure, deep in prayer. (laughs) Perhaps you feel that you have some handicaps that would prevent God's purpose being fulfilled in your life of setting your entire energy and strength to the task of spreading the gospel to the nations of the world. Let me tell you, I don't know many people that have greater handicaps than Tom Brewster had. And the question that Tom poses to us with his life and his testimony is, are we willing if God is willing? The last person that poses a question for us is... uh, my little newborn daughter, Carissa. And the question she poses is the question, what about your children, you people of God? What about your sons and daughters? What's your dream for them? Do you have a dream? Do you dream for them great wealth? Do you dream for them fame and fortune? Or do you dream for them God's dreams, for his kingdom? I have a good friend. Uh, he was, he's Irish, and uh, he was the director of our work in Ireland for a number of years. Now he's uh, involved in a, an outreach to the third world, the poor countries of the world. And I asked him once, David, tell me, what is it that motivated you to become a missionary? graduate of Trinity College Dublin, the most elite institution of his country, microbiologist, could have had a teaching or research position at any institute in the country. And I asked him, David, what motivated you all to your, you to turn your back on all of that and become a missionary? And he smiled, and uh, he's got a wonderful wit, and he said, you know, he said, my parents would invite missionaries to our home. And my parents taught me that missionaries are God's nobility in the world. And I just couldn't see taking anything second best to being a missionary. What's your dream for yourself, for your children? What do we dream for our children? What do I dream for my two little daughters? How would I feel if my daughter came to me in 18 years or 19 years and said, Dad, I really feel God has called me to join Wycliffe Bible Translators and go to a Muslim tribe in West Africa? Gulp. How would I feel about that? This little girl, I wrote a note, it's a letter to her in a way, shortly after her birth, when she finally was ours. I'd like to read to you a portion of that. Today I held our daughter Carissa in my arms for the very first time. After the long months of tension and waiting, she slept peacefully on my lap as I sang and talked with her, and somewhere in the depths of my being, the quiet voice of God's Spirit seemed to whisper, She's yours now. I've given her to you for these years to cherish and love and lead on toward me. But she's not your possession. She remains mine. 
As I miraculously brought her to you, I will continue to lead her along life's road. Enfold her in your arms, but hold her gently, for she is and will remain mine. What are the dreams we dream for ourselves, for our children? Is it God's dream, a story to tell to the nations, a kingdom story of God's kingdom? I pray it really is, and I pray it will remain so for me and you. But then the question comes, how can we help one another? What is it? What's the secret of being able to go onward to see God's vision for ourselves and our children fulfilled in this time when so much speaks against it? When forces are tearing like mad dogs at our lives and our marriages and want to prevent any commitment to Christ and to one another. I'd like to share with you this morning what I feel is the secret that God has placed in our hands for winning, for retaining God's kingdom values and his vision for our lives and for that of our family. And that secret is accountability one to another. A little later this morning, there's going to be two couples and their children that are going to stand here with us as we dedicate Carissa. These are couples whose lives are intertwined with ours, with Anne and my life. And I'd like to ask Will and Anne, our friends from Idaho Falls, to come in just a moment and share with you how God has led us together. I uh, tell my friends in Germany, Idaho Falls isn't the end of the world, but you can see it from there. Uh, Please forgive me. (laughs) And how God wove a magnificent web over the years and over the miles to bring about a miracle. Every morning when I get up and almost before I do anything else, I slide down on my knees and say a very short prayer. And... I need to confess that I've only done this for about 90 days. But I got tired of living the, the boring existence that I had been living. Even though I was tuned into Jesus, I wanted to, I wanted to feel the power of what it is to be a Christian. And so I get on my knees every morning and say, Lord, show me your miracle today. Show me your answered prayer. Show me your surprise. And last service, I met a man named Bob Pence. And in a very unique way, he was my surprise and my answered prayer this morning on some of the things we talked about. As I look back over the 18 years that I've known Clark Petticourt, I have experienced the third point in his talk this morning about an open universe where God's hand reaches in and can touch our lives and change the destiny of each of us individually And I've seen answered prayer again and again as Clark and I have prayed on different issues. And even though we come from totally different backgrounds, different areas of the country, we're separated by miles, we're separated by time, the thing that unites us is our vision of Jesus Christ and who he is in the world. And as our vision has led us together, Our lives have uniquely been woven together. 
And I'll never forget the time about five years ago when I drove to Boise with the woman on my left for a skiing outing, and we went up into McCall. He had arranged it. This was a woman I'd only known for six months. I'd asked her to come out to Idaho and see where I lived. And we drove to McCall with Clark and Ann for a weekend of skiing. And coming back, Clark was uniquely responsible for Will Anderson marrying Ann. And that's the way our lives have been for 18 years. Each of us uniquely responsible for different things in each other's lives because of our commitment to each other. I remember the statement that was once said, how many people's lives would really be changed if you disappeared right now? Not that they'd say, well, he was a nice guy or she was a nice lady, but their lives would really be changed. Those are the lives that really count in this world. And yet so often we spend so little time and so little effort communicating and telling people in that, in that mode that, you know, we really care about you. And if Clark were to disappear and Ann were to disappear, my life would never be the same. And that's what commitment really is. And, gee, when it comes to Christianity, if you don't have close Christian friends that have the same vision that you do. It's, it's, it's a great waste. And I look back and I look forward on my relationship with Clark. And I just want to thank you as a congregation because for over 18 years you've prayed. I think he came to Christ through this congregation and the people in this congregation over 18 years ago. I just want to thank you for the love and the support that you've given my good friend, my good friends, Clark and Ann and Shana. You know, I was 35 when I married this man. Nowadays, you know, I, I don't want to depress any of you who are single and make you think that maybe God's going to allow you to wait 35 years too. But I was 35 years old when I met Will, and for several occasions when I met him in Boston where I lived, he would tell me he was a little dirt farmer. I was terrified. My father was a preacher, and we never had very much money, and I figured that farmers never had much more than preachers. And a dirt farmer, well, that was probably really bad. And when I came to Idaho, which did seem at the end of the earth to me from Boston, I was terrified. And I was terrified that God might ask me to marry this man. I I thought he was very exciting and impressive and no nonsense, but a farmer, a dirt farmer from Idaho... Well, I laugh now that I see where he grew up. I thought his mother probably lived in a shanty with pigs and goats, and it was a lot nicer than that when I got there. But I can remember the day after we had been skiing. I was 35 years old. We were Will and I were in the back seat of this wagoneer, and Clark turned around and looked at me. I'd never met Clark and Ann before I met Will. I met them through him. And he said, you know, Ann, if there's any man on the face of the earth that can handle you, it's Will Anderson. Well, if anybody else had said that, I might not have paid a whole lot of attention, but for Clark Petticord to say that, I mean, I felt anything he said was gospel. He was right next to Elijah, and I believed him. And sitting in the back of this wagoneer, I looked over at my 
husband-to-be after 35 years. It was overwhelming to me, and I cried and cried. Clark and Ann were there with us at that moment. I married Will five and a half years ago in the heart of Boston and moved to Idaho. And though I had traveled the world for years and spoken to thousands every month, I began an encounter that I had never experienced before. God stripped me of everything that was familiar and dear to me. And he took away things that I loved and left me this little naked seed of who I really was in Idaho Falls, Idaho. And I began to know sorrow as it really is. I really believe, ladies and gentlemen, that until you know sorrow, you never know how to celebrate. Until you know loss, you never really know what a gift is. Until you cry, you never know what real joy is. But in the last five and a half years, Clark and Ann have been with us. I have lost seven babies of my own. In a miraculous chain of events, God gave us two fabulous little boys. And we do think they're about the most brilliant, beautiful little boys on earth. I can say that because Clark and Ann's children are girls. Isn't that great? (laughs) But in the last five and a half years, Clark and Ann and Will and I have stood together, and they've lost a couple of babies of their own. And this summer, my husband took my two babies and me to Yugoslavia. Well, it sounded like the other side of the world, and I kept saying, Honey, you go. I don't mind. I'll be cheering for you and rooting for you. He said, I want you and the babies to go, too. So finally, I succumbed. I believe in submission. I just knew God would help me, and we got to Yugoslavia, and he was right. It was prettier than I thought. The hotels were wonderful. The people were fabulous. The babies and I had fun. And one day, I said to Will, Honey, we just can't go home without seeing Clark and Ann. This is their side of the world. And Will said, Ann, I've been to the Pan Am office several times. It would cost $2,800 to even spend an hour in Frankfurt, Germany. And I just kept bugging him. Finally, the last day we were in Yugoslavia, I said to Will again, I don't care what it costs, I think we've got to see Clark and Ann. He handed me the tickets and said, Honey, you go to the Pan Am office, and whatever you decide, I'll go along with it. All right? He gave me the tickets. I left the babies with one of the nannies. I marched into the Pan Am office, terrified, you know, I'm used to singing songs to people and talking about Jesus. And I was in a communistic country where I knew that wasn't allowed. But after I kept going over my plan with this lady, she kept saying, it will cost you $2,800. And finally I said, ma'am, I believe in miracles. Now, I don't know how you feel about things like this, but I just have to tell you, I really love God. And I believe in miracles. And this couple, they're not just ordinary people, you know. These, this couple, they're missionaries in Germany, and they've lost two babies, and I know all about that because I've lost a few myself, and they're some of our dearest friends, and you've got to help us. Well, she finally, kind of exasperated, said, give me $250, and when you get to Frankfurt, you'll just have to go to a ticket agent there, and ma'am, I'm telling you, unless there's a miracle, like you say, you're going to have to pay all this other money, all right? I'll risk it. Fix our tickets. Will came home, and I just love my husband. You know, he was for me. He said, whatever it takes, we'll do it. We got to Frankfurt. Clark and Ann and Shauna were there. They had never seen our two little boys. We laughed together. We cried together. We had picnics together. We ate all kinds of sweets, which I love, together. And we shared, and they shared their desire for another baby. 
And I said to Clark as we left Frankfurt, I just know God is going to give you another baby. I have faith. We got to the airport in Frankfurt the morning we were to leave. My husband sent me to the ticket counter myself with the baby in each lap, and I tried to look as haggard as possible. I was in a long line, and a man came and opened the next counter, and I went moving over with my children, thinking I didn't know how long I could survive with, you know, a little hunk on each hip. And a man looked at me and said, Lady, I've been in line longer than you. You move back. I'm first. Well, sir, what do you mean you're first? I mean, I was, lady, I've been in this. And just like that, I said, Lord, maybe this is part of your plan. I better move back. I mean, this is going to take a miracle. My heart was just pounding. Sir, you go right ahead. He moved up, and I began to hear this ticket agent pound, pound out everything on keys and told the man he owed 800 and some dollars, and the man argued, and the ticket agent said, pay it or don't get on the plane. And I was becoming more terrified by the moment. I knew he wasn't a novice, this ticket agent, which I had prayed for, of course. (laughs) And so I was standing there holding my baby, saying, I know we did it right. We're committed to Clark and Ann. I wouldn't have traded this for anything. And if I have to get a part-time job to pay for $2,800 worth of tickets, I'll do it. So, Lord, I just thank you. And suddenly a young woman moved into the next counter, a ticket agent, and looked at me and said, I'll take you. I marched up. I laid my tickets down. I said, you know, we're going back to New York. Have you paid all the money, the extra money you're supposed to? Well, I paid everything they told me to in Yugoslavia. She said, that's good enough. She got out the stickers, flapped them, stamped them on our tickets, and I stumbled away in tears knowing that a miracle had occurred. And I looked at Clark again with fresh faith in my heart. I knew a newborn would be a miracle, but I believed that the God who had followed me all my life and through a lot of sorrow the last five years was going to do a miracle. Will and I got home, and we were home three days when my phone rang at my house, and a lady said, Ann, do you know any fabulous, wonderful, special couple to take a little newborn baby that's due in a few weeks? I do. I spent hours with this young biological mother. I spent hours with the father. Will and I met the whole family. We worked with them. I told them that there were no finer people on the face of the earth than Clark and Ann Petticord. That baby could never be in better hands. And two weeks ago, I happened, sad to say, to be addressing a convention of 10,000 women in Milwaukee the night this baby was born. But I called the delivery room and talked to all of them from my hotel room, and it was a moment of celebration when Carissa was born two weeks ago. I have come to tell you today that Will and I are committed totally to Clark and Ann, and to say what Will did, we thank you for loving them because we love them so much. But I've come today to tell you that I know that Jesus does create miracles. You know, I like singing little songs. Would you care if I sang one? I don't have a very good voice. Most, Many of you may know that. But one of my favorite little songs right now in my life is, In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful. In his time, Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me the way that you do just what you say in your time. I waited 35 years to marry this man. And I was 35 years old when I met Clark and Ann. 
I lost a lot of babies before I got my two little boys, and Clark and Ann waited several years for Carissa and many years for Shauna. If you need a miracle in your life today, I'm just a simple woman, but I have come to tell you Jesus does things like that in his time. Never, ever, ever give up. You need to stay here. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, come on, Pete and Mary Ellen, and the boys. Might as well make this uh, complete already. He said in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he talked about the white witch who placed a curse on Narnia. And the curse was that it was always winter, but never Christmas. And for us, these years of waiting for Shauna to be born, and then her prayers, God, give us a little baby. And then for Carissa, finally for us, it was Christmas. And I'd like to just tell you that wherever you are in your life, if it's winter, don't give up. Keep trusting Jesus. Christmas is coming. And for our world, the King is coming back. It's going to be Christmas. We're not going to always see war and suffering and pain. Christmas is coming for our world, too. And let's commit ourselves together to reach out to that world. Pete and Mary Ellen Stewart and their boys and Will and Ann and their two boys are people that we have a covenant commitment to for the rest of our lives. And we've asked them to stand here with us, with you together. We're committed to you, too. To commit Carissa and her future to Christ. And I'd like to ask Brian to come up now as the uh, representative of uh, our body here at Cole and with us together uh, commit Carissa to the Lord. May I just say, before we do this, that I think that these two little girls are an answer to your prayers. The Wednesday morning women in the Bible study where we've been the missionaries have prayed ever since Shauna was born and before Shauna was born that she would have a good delivery for us to have another baby. And I want to thank you ladies and your families that prayed with you for these two children. Do I get to hold her? Okay, that's uh can't dedicate one unless you get to hold it. Just wanted to remind uh, all of you as a fellowship that an infant dedication is as much a dedication of the parents as it is of the infant. Uh, the word dedicate or consecrate in the scriptures means simply to set apart for God and for his use. And that's what Clark and Ann want to do with little Carissa, is set her apart uh, for God to be used in any way that he sees fit. It's a scary thing to do because you never know what plans God might have for your child. That's why dedicating your child to the Lord is a very serious thing. But it's also a way of committing themselves to him to be the kind of parents that God wants them to be and allow him to mature them and grow them up as parents for this little one. So please uh, join with me as all of us together dedicate this little one to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this little life and what she represents and all of her potential and the plans, the glorious plans that you have for her. You tell us in the scripture that 
You have things in store for us that we can't even think of, we can't even uh, think to ask you for, because you delight to do things exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We pray that you would do that for little Carissa, that uh, her plans, uh, your plans for her would be great, would be glorious, and would involve the extension of the kingdom. We pray as her little life is presented to you today and handed over to you that uh, you would prepare her to be God's woman for your kingdom, that you'd raise her up to be a woman who is responsive to you, to your leadership, and eager to be used by you to advance the kingdom to the farthest corners of the world. We pray for her parents, for Clark and Anne, that you likewise would mature them, that uh, the responsibility of raising this little life would be something that you would use in their lives to mature them, to grow them up. We pray that you'd equip them with all the love and the insight and the wisdom that they will need to love her. Pray that you'd give them the right blend of firmness and gentleness in her little life, that she might grow up to be a woman who truly reflects uh, God-likeness. We pray that you'd remind them that they are simply stewards of little Carissa's life, that she belongs to you, and that uh, you simply entrusted her to them for a period of time. I pray that they would be ready at any point to relinquish that ownership if you desire to reclaim her life in any way. We thank you for those that stand with them, for the loyalty and allegiance of their friends. Pray that they would be a great support to them in this process. And for little Shauna, as she accepts the responsibility of having a new little sister in the home, I pray that you would uh, use Carissa to teach her what it means to give and to share and uh, to love uh, another as much as she loves her parents. So we entrust this family to you, Father. Pray that you would give them all of the resources that they need to Bring little Carissa to maturity to be God's woman for God's kingdom. Amen. My stepmom and Anne's aunt are here, and I'd just like to ask them to stand and just say hi to you all. Thank you all for coming. It means a lot that you're here with us today, too. I'd like to just close with those questions that we reflected on earlier together. What about Nineveh? What about the world? Are we willing to let God have his way in spite of our limitations? And are we willing to go and to let our children go and send them to the reaches of the world for the kingdom of God? What's our dream for our lives and for the lives of our children? Let's close together by singing hymn number 497, This hymn represents this call to commitment, and I'd like to ask you to sing it with me as a statement of commitment to God and his kingdom principles for our lives and for the lives of our families.